All right, we have a uh, second time the opportunity, and in light of what was noted in the prayer, um, the freedom, and the privilege to open our Bibles without fear and have uh, us hear what God would have us hear this afternoon. I want to draw your attention to John chapter 6. If you have your Bibles, turn there. Otherwise, um, you can take a look at the overhead. I'm going to read not really the entire chapter. John chapter 6, okay, that's the fourth book of the New Testament. The Gospel of John is a pretty lengthy chapter, and so we're not going to read the whole chapter. Um, I'm just going to re begin reading at the verse 53 and read to the end of the chapter, and kind of, um, I'm not going to uh, uh, look at everything from John chapter 6, but focus on some main points that we need to know in light of what we're considering this afternoon from uh, the document that we've been following from uh, week to week in this church, a document that goes back many years and is a wonderful teaching tool, it is called the Heidelberg uh, Catechism. And, you know, I've said this many times before, but um, I know that we probably have some visitors here this afternoon. Um, I want to, uh, I'm leading a class this past week on the foundations of the, of the Christian faith for some individuals that have been coming to our church. And... Um, we, we talked about this whole matter of, uh, uh, of the catechism, and one of the persons said, well, that, that, that it sounds really kind of Roman Catholic, and it does for a lot of people. But a lot of people don't know that during the time of what we call the Protestant Reformation, which was a renewal movement in the church that was responding against Catholic doctrine and morals, um, there were over, in the 1560s alone, just a one decade period of time, there were over 50 uh, confessions and catechisms that were written in order to summarize the teachings of the Bible for the sake of people who are learning the Bible for the first time, really, the contents of the Bible, first time in their life. So when you think of a catechism, think of like, uh, well, boy, I'm really dating myself now here. Um, pretend you don't have phones. They used to use atlases. Do you remember that? You know, big, right, big maps, right? And what catechism is, like a map. It's just a map summarizes where you're going. So if you're, if you're taking a trip, you know, let's say you're going to, I don't know, you're going to Nova Scotia, all right, and you travel from Abbotsford. It's just like you get in the car and go, I know that Nova Scotia is in, like, that direction. So you start driving, figure, we'll figure it out on the way. That's like trying to look at the Bible and say, I'm going to try to figure out the Bible just by reading Genesis and read through it, and, you know, I'll probably figure out what it's all about. And in some ways you can do that. But what the catechisms does is just kind of, it's like a map, summarizes everything and kind of directs you where you are to go, and it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful teaching tool. So we're going to look at the Bible first and foremost, because it's the most important, and then we're going to look at uh, site, uh, a question and answer from the catechism. So, all right, John chapter 6, John chapter 6, I want to begin reading at verse 53. Jesus says these words, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Kids, that sounds kind of gross, doesn't it? What is Jesus saying there? Jesus says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue 
as he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken are to you spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. And after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of life, eternal life. And we have believed and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Interesting words of Jesus, kind of unsettling words, actually, of Jesus. Now, I want to draw your attention to question and answer 21. This is one of the, I think, one of the more important question and answers of the Heidelberg Catechism, and it's one of those, like, question and answer one that's really worth memorizing, really, because it has to do with true faith. The Bible says without faith we cannot please God, so it's important that we know what faith is. Well, what is genuine true faith? And let's give the answer together. Let's say together, true faith is a sure knowledge whereby I accept as true all that God has revealed to us in the Word. At the same time, it is a firm confidence that not only to others, but also to me, God has granted forgiveness of sins, everlasting righteousness and salvation out of mere grace, only for the sake of Christ's merits. This faith the Holy Spirit works in my heart by the gospel. That's, that's kind of a mouthful, really. Um, and yet, it's a very concise statement concerning all what the Bible teaches about faith and the need for faith in Jesus Christ. So we're going to look at what true, authentic, genuine faith in Christ looks like. Okay, Now, kids, children, uh, I know that you like stories, so I'm going to tell you a story. And it's a story that actually comes right out of the Bible. It's not a real long story. Okay? It revolves around two men who are followers of Jesus. One follower of Jesus' name was the Apostle Paul. And if you grow up in the Christian faith... You learn about Jesus and his disciples, and you probably learn about the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul is what we call a convert to the Christian faith. He was a Jew, and he was a man who did not like Jesus, and he hated Jesus' church. In fact, he tried to persecute it out of existence. But God, by his grace and through the appearance of the ascended, resurrected and ascended Christ, uh, abruptly came to Paul as he was traveling on what was known as the road to Damascus and shifted his allegiance, shifted his commitment uh, away from persecuting the church to loving the church and actually loving Jesus. So he started to work on behalf of Jesus, Paul, and then also there was a helper of Paul named Silas. 
And they were preaching Jesus, and they were spreading the message of Jesus. At one point, they were thrown into prison. Now, I'm not going to go into all the details of why that was, but only the fact that for the sake of Jesus, they were thrown into prison. And they were thrown into prison uh, in a place called Philippi. And Philippi is a city in a place called Macedonia. You probably don't know where Macedonian is, but if you would go uh, look at an atlas, or look on your phone, and you look at where Philippi may have been, and you look where Macedonia is, it's very near the countries of Greece and also Turkey today. All right, so they were in, in uh, a prison in Philippi, and um, they were there with other prisoners, and there was, a, there, was a, there was a guard there known commonly as the Philippian jailer, the Philippian guard, and he was guarding Paul and Silas so they wouldn't escape. They stayed in their prison cells, and he was guarding other prisoners as well. And when Paul and Silas were in prison, you know what they did? They prayed, and they actually sang songs. So what that tells us is that they weren't afraid in prison. They knew that, that God would take care of them. And so they were singing and praying, and then around midnight, something happened. Three things happened as a result of what we call divine intervention. That is, the, 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 the hand of God was at work. One, there was an earthquake, and then secondly, the, the, what we call the fetters, or the things that, that the metal bindings around their, their wrists and their feet became loosened, and also their, the, the locks on their jail cells were loosened as well, and not only Paul and Silas's jail cell, but also the other prisoners, so now they could go free. And when the Philippian jailer realized what happened, he took out his sword, and he was going to kill himself. He was going to stab himself. He was going to commit suicide. You say, why would he do that? Well, the reason why he was going to do that was because, because he knew that he was going to be held responsible for the prisoners going free. And so he thought, well, they're going to kill me anyway, these people who are in authority over me, so I might as well kill myself. So he drew his sword, ready to kill himself, ready to commit suicide. And Paul and Silas see this, and they say, stop, don't do that. And they said, don't worry, we're all here. We're all here. And then the Philippian jailer says this to Paul and Silas, very famous words in the Bible. He pleads with them and he says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? In other words, saved from this bad situation that I'm in. And Paul and Silas didn't say, well, I'll tell you what, hurry up, come with us and we'll take you to a safe place. Just, just come with us. They said instead, and it shows how Paul and Silas always took advantage of a gospel opportunity to preach Jesus. They said, believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Famous words in the Bible regarding faith. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And if you think about it, the very question that the Philippian jailer asked Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved, is the most important thing question we could ever ask ourselves. What must I, what must you do to be saved? You say, saved from what? Saved from peril. Saved from the peril of, of sin, but even more than that, to be saved from the just wrath and punishment of God upon sin in this life as well as the life to come. The, there may be some of you here this afternoon but certainly there are many people in the world who just don't understand the gravity of their sin and 
how much of an offense it is to God. And I must tell you that this is not something that thrills a pastor to have to say. It's important for a pastor to have to say, a preacher to say, because it's true. But it's not like, well, that's really good news, isn't it? It's really good news that, that God's wrath and his punishment comes naturally upon us, upon our sin. But the good news rests in this, that there's, there's the opportunity to be saved from that sin and actually be, as the Bible says, reconciled to God, to be put in a right relationship with God. But how does that happen? And how that happens is very simple. And that is what Paul and Silas said to the Philippian jailer. To be saved, you have to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. But what, is it, what does it really mean to believe? What, is, what does true belief look like? What, what does genuine belief look like? Okay, that's, that's what I want to demonstrate from this passage from John 6. Again, we don't have time to go through everything, so I'm going to touch on the major points. Now, some things on John 6. Again, we're going to talk about the importance of genuine faith in Christ. At this point in Jesus' ministry, and it's relatively early in his ministry, there are three groups of people that are following Jesus. Okay, So at the beginning of John chapter 6, you have what are called the crowds, or a crowd. When we think of a crowd, the indication is that there are literally thousands of people who are intrigued by Jesus, and who are intrigued by who he is and what he's doing. So you got the crowd. Then there's the second group, and that is a group known as disciples. Disciples are followers of Jesus. Disciples are apprentices of Jesus, imitators of Jesus. The word in the original is methetes. Um, and they are those literally who are witnesses of Christ. In other words, they witness not only who he is, but they bear witness to him in the world. Now, I said there's three groups. I mentioned the crowd, but then I just mentioned disciples. But under the heading disciples, you have, you have two groups of disciples. You have, in a sense, a broader group of disciples that consists of hundreds, and then you have a narrower group of disciples, which we know commonly as the 12, 12 disciples. Now, a, a, a lot of people, even if they've been in the Christian faith for some time, when you ask them the question, well, how many followers did Jesus have? Because they know their Bible somewhat, they're going to go, 12 followers, right? The 12 disciples of Jesus. But what I'm here to tell you this afternoon is when you think of followers, think of concentric circles. Think of initially thousands and then hundreds, and then the inner circle is the 12. So in the beginning, Jesus had many followers. What's kind of interesting is that when you look at the ministry of Jesus Christ, you have all these followers in the beginning, and then think of a funnel, so at, Jesus had a three-year ministry, and as Jesus goes on with that three-year ministry, that, that funnel gets narrower and narrower and narrower, so that even at the end, his own disciples, his 12 disciples, flee from Jesus, so that finally when he's on the cross, which we're going to celebrate this Good Friday, less than a week, at the very end, Jesus is all alone with his Father. And even on the cross... Father leaves Jesus behind because he's bearing the weight of the world's sin. And Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But in the beginning, there were many. Why were many people, why were the crowds following Jesus? 
They're following Jesus because they were wowed by the things that he could do, his miracles. If you would put up the first um, uh, couple of verses from John chapter 6 and two, uh, chapter 6, verse 2 and 14. We read this, a large crowd was following him. And we say, well, why? And it says here, because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. So kids, when, when Jesus was going around, basically he was healing individuals. And you know, he was healing people like, as we saw, I think it was last week, Jesus was healing lepers. Jesus was healing the blind. We saw that last week as well. Jesus was, was healing the demon-possessed. Jesus was healing all kinds of individuals, right? And the people, actually, the Bible says that they saw the signs, these miracles that he's performing. But also this, verse 14, when the people saw the sign that he had done, namely, and I'll explain this, the multiplication of the loaves, they said, this is indeed the prophet who's come into the world. So remember, there were, there were gathered people of 5,000. That's like a small town. 5,000 people were gathered, and Jesus realized that they were hungry, and he needed to feed them, and all he had was five loaves of bread and two fish, and miraculously, Jesus caused the multiplication of the loaves and the fish in order to feed the people. Word got around. People like, what in the world? This is a great prophet. And then in verse 15, they want to make Jesus their king, right? So, wow, you, got, you have all these individuals following after Jesus, and you would think that Jesus thought this was a good thing. This is great. I mean, he's like he's a celebrity pastor, like mega church, right? 5,000 people. Jesus has never been concerned just about sheer numbers and popularity. Jesus knew the hearts of these individuals, and he knew why they were following him. They were following him because he was feeding their stomachs, and, and, he, and, they, were, and they were following him, he realized, because he was doing all these incredible miracles, right? Jesus knew this. He knew that ultimately they lacked understanding about who he really was and what he came to do. They, they were kind of, well, they were ignorant. And so what Jesus does, this is classic Jesus, he presses them in order to, so that they show their true colors. And Jesus says to them at one point, he kind of gets in the face of these individuals, and he says, you know what? In, in so many words, he says, you follow me, because I fed you. And I gave you bread that in time perishes. So if you eat it, we say it perishes in your stomach, right? Because your digestive system takes over. Or if you don't eat it, you could bre bread on this table. And I tell you what, next week that you come, the bread's going to be stale and it's going to be moldy and you got to chuck it, right? So Jesus says, I gave you a bread that perishes, but now I am offering you a bread that will give you life eternal life. And Jesus says, I am that true bread. Take hold of this bread, referring to himself. In other words, he's saying, unite yourself to me. Come to me and embrace me for who I really am, not who you think I am. I am the true bread that comes out of heaven, Jesus says. And then he says these, these famous words. Now if you put the second uh, group up there, Notice what he says. He's, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And then he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh, drinks my blood, has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. And these people are thinking, What? Gross. 
eat your flesh, drink your blood. Did you know that in the early church, one of the reasons why the Christians were, were a, a couple of reasons why the Christians were being so severely persecuted is because those of Roman society really didn't understand who they were. They, they thought these Christians were crazy because they called each other brothers and sisters. So there must be incestuous things going on in the church, not making that up. And when the Christians took, uh, partook of the Lord's Supper, they heard them talking about eating the flesh and drinking Jesus, Jesus' blood, right? And they're, 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 they're talking about that figuratively, but people in Roman society thought that they were speaking literally. And so what you have is you have a bunch of people get together who are incestuous and they're cannibalistic. They're eating human flesh and drinking human blood. One of the reasons why they were persecuting them. These people didn't understand either. The four things, they didn't understand who Jesus was. They did not believe in him. They did not accept him. And so they said, enough. In a sense, they washed their hands of him. All of a sudden, these thousands of followers are leaving. What was the point of this? They thought they believed in Jesus. They thought that they knew who he was. And yet, in reality, they didn't have a true knowledge. They didn't have a true understanding. They didn't have a true heart commitment. Not every faith is true faith. Okay? So that there was that group. And then Jesus hits us hard with this text where he said, no one can actually come to me unless my Father who sent me draw them. In other words, in other words, this crowd didn't come to Jesus and they didn't embrace Jesus by faith and commit their lives to him they didn't do that because they were not given the ability to do so by God mm. that's, a, that's, a, that's a deep thing that I just said and it's, it's what Jesus brings out on a number of occasions in John chapter 6 and it's actually a teaching that causes people to stumble and it did cause that the teaching where Jesus says, my, my, my flesh is true food and my, my blood is true drink, that, that not only was difficult for people to embrace, but also the whole idea that Jesus can call a person to faith and to come to him, and yet only God can enact that, bring that about in a person's life. It all rests with God. Faith in itself and acceptance itself of Christ is a gift, actually. It has to come from God. And this, this, okay, so then we get to the second concentric circle. Then you have these hundreds of followers of Jesus, the broader circle of, of Jesus, followers of Jesus. And they listen to this, and not only are they perplexed by this, but they're offended by it. They're offended by it. So Jesus, with that second group, finally says to them, hmm, does this offend you? And it was offensive to some of them. And then Jesus goes on to say, and some of you do not believe. These are, these are just some of what we call, theologians call the hard sayings of Jesus. Jesus was not afraid. because Jesus is always seeking to elicit commitment, not numbers, commitment. People, we talked about that this morning regarding pathway, right? We're not into numbers here. We're into commitment. Whether people come from outside the faith or they come from inside the faith, we want people who are committed, we're in for the long haul, we're all in. Same, you know, this is what Jesus was all about. So he says, this is offensive to you, some of you don't believe, he says, right to their faces, 
And the fact is, yeah, some of them were not believing, so what'd they do? They walked too. The crowd walks, these hundreds start walking. So Jesus turns to Peter, basically, and says, okay, what about you? You gonna walk too? Because if you're gonna walk, might as well do it now, and follow the crowds. And then we find, and this is the main point, okay, this afternoon. It all kind of leads up to this. He says to Peter, are you going to walk too? And, and he, addre- he didn't address, he addresses Peter because Peter's a spokesman for the disciples. If you know anything about Peter, he's always sticking his foot in his mouth, right? Very impulsive, saying stupid things. But this is a shining moment for Peter. So if you happen to say stupid things sometimes in your life, well, you know what? Look to Peter because there are shining moments. We all have our shining moments. And he, he, said in a, he said, Lord, to whom else are we going to go? You have the words of life. And then he comes to say this. He says, and we have believed, and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. You're the true one. You're the Messiah. The one sent by the Father into the world. We've come to know and we've come to believe. Now, if I get a little technical at this point, but it's a really important point. When Peter says that we have come to believe and know that you're the Holy One of God, in the original language, this comes in the what we call the perfect tense. So grammatically, in the, when things come in the perfect tense, it means something that was accomplished in the past but has continuing results in the future. So if you really want to take hold of Peter's words very literally, he's saying this, Lord, to whom else shall we go? You have the words of life, and we have come to believe and continue to believe, and we have come to know and continue to know that, yes, you are the Holy One of God. My friends, that, that is true faith. That is true faith. We have an example you know, the Bible not just calls us to true faith, but we have an example of true faith here, which consists of a true knowledge, but a hearty belief and conviction that Jesus is the true one, the Christ who's come into the world to save us from our sins and in time restore the whole creation. That's true faith, the kind that God wants us to have. Now, I want to draw you just for a couple minutes to the Heidelberg, and then I want to draw it draw to a close, because I want to fill this out in a little bit of discussion time uh, in just a moment. So I want to draw your attention. If you could put the, the uh, Heidelberg Catechism up there, is it possible? There you go. Okay. Now, very quickly, you know what the, what the, what the Catechism does? It's very interesting. It actually, it actually takes Peter's words and expands on it and explains it for us. So remember, Peter says, we have come to believe and know that you're the Holy One of God. It's those two main elements that the Catechism says comprises true faith. So take a look at the wording here. What is true faith? All right. True faith is a sure knowledge whereby I accept as true all that God has revealed to us in his word. So whether you are a child growing up in a Christian faith and your parents or your school, your church is teaching you the Bible or whether you are really new to faith, exploring the Bible for the first time, what you're doing is you're learning the contents of this. The the whole of the Bible consists, as we've seen a few weeks ago, the whole of the Bible, Old and New Testament, points us to Jesus. Jesus points us to the gospel, the good news, that he's come into this world to save sinners. 
So really what we need to do is we need to read the Bible and understand the basic gospel message, the good news of the Bible. Because there are many people who believe in Jesus, but they're not grounded in this. And so what do they do? They kind of gradually walk away. They're not ground, so we've got to be grounded in this. That's why we take a lot of time in our services to preach the Bible. All right. The second part of faith that we have to have is we have to have a firm confidence or a conviction that not only to others, but also me, notice how personal it gets, God has granted through Christ forgiveness of sins, everlasting righteousness, and salvation, which comes to us out of mere grace, only for the sake of Christ's merits. In other words, I have a firm conviction that I can't work my way to God, so that on the end, I come before God, and he goes, you know what? You haven't been the best person, but you've been good enough. Come on in. Come on into heaven. No, we don't rest upon our own work. We rest upon the work of Christ, and we embrace that work of Christ on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins and eternal life. And we embrace that by what? By faith. Because we understand with our head, and we also become convicted in our hearts. And then the last thing it says is this. This faith, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit works in my heart by the gospel. We don't generate this faith ourselves. It's a gift of God, by the Spirit of God. Now, one thing, if you put up those three parts here, uh, next slide, if you would. There, uh, no, forward. There you go. All right. Three elements of true faith. Why do I ask the, the AV team to, to put up that up here? Now, you're going, you look at that. I'm going to make just a real quick comment, and then we're going to draw to a close. There are actually three elements of true faith. And you see these words, notitia, essentia, fiducia. Those are Latin terms. The reason why I put that up there is because those of the Protestant Reformation many years ago used those terms to describe the three main elements of true faith. What are they? First of all, notitius. Notitia refers to knowledge. You can't believe in something that you don't know about, right? So it stands to reason. You have to know what you believe. So there's, first of all, knowledge. But then there's essentia. That is an agreement to what we know to be true in the Bible. So that involves our understanding. But you can easily know about something and say, you know what, I agree that that is true, but that doesn't mean that you've taken it home into your heart. The, the reformers were very good about this. They said, you know what, the heart is the very center of our existence. The heart has to be convicted. So we need to know what we believe, agree, and with a hearty conviction, we say, you know what? What Jesus did, he not only did for others, but you know what? He did for me. He did for me. I've known Christians who have studied the Bible, they agree with the Bible and what it says, but they just don't know if it really applies to them because, oh, I'm so worthy and I'm so sinful. We'll talk about that during discussion time. has to come into our heart. We have to believe that what Christ did for others, he also did for me. And when you believe that, oh, there is freedom. So in the end, the very question that Jesus posed to Peter, like, so what about you? You're going to follow the crowd? You're going to follow others? You're going to do what they're doing? You're going to walk away too? And may it be in every one of our minds, in our hearts, in our understandings, that we will say like Peter, Lord, who else are we going to go to? And whom else are we going to find rescue and deliverance? I believe, and I know, that you're the Holy One of God. And in you, 
is life, is life itself. All right, let's have a quick prayer, and then we're going to have a few points of discussion. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for teaching us this afternoon about true faith. It's good that we know what true faith is, Lord, but it's even better to have that faith, that kind of faith, that genuine faith reside within our minds and our understandings and our hearts. Lord Jesus, we know, we know that there is no hope and there's no deliverance and ultimately no joy apart from you. So Lord, work that faith within our hearts, draw us to yourself. It's oftentimes said from the pulpit here, Lord, you may have to draw us to yourself by faith, by that gift of faith for the first time in our life. But Lord, many of us, no doubt, walking with you now, deepen that kind of faith within us, Lord. Grant that so, that so that we may enjoy then with full conviction all the benefits that we have in Christ and then make those benefits also known to others that they are available if they will but believe, repent, and believe in Christ. So God grant that we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Now. For those of you who are new here, this is not going to be a surprise to those of us who are members here, but we do have a bit of time, real quick, 